Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. This teaching was recorded live during our weekend service in St. Charles, Illinois. We invite you to join us in person any weekend in St. Charles, DeKalb, Aurora, or Streamwood. Learn more at ccclife.org. And now, enjoy the message. The first time I read the Chronicles of Narnia uh, was back when I was a college student taking it as a literature class. Uh, And then the next time I read it, fast forward a number of years, I read through all seven books again out loud to my three kids. And then the most recent reading was just, uh, oh, a year and a half, two years ago, Sue and I read the Chronicles out loud to each other, stopping on occasion to wipe the tears from our eyes. I mean, it's that good. Uh, the, The series begins with the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's about four siblings living in England. Uh, four young children, and they find their way into a musty wardrobe in, in an old house, and it leads to the magical land of Narnia that is in the grip of the wicked white witch, who makes it always winter and never Christmas. Sounds a little bit like Chicago, <laughs> right? But there is a hero, fortunately, in the story. There is a savior. His name is Aslan, and when the kids first hear about Aslan, they just uh, assume that he is a man. And Mr. Beaver corrects their impression. He says Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Susan, one of the siblings, responds, oh, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. You know, who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. He's not like a tame lion. Now, what Mr. Beaver said about Aslan could be said about God. He is not a safe God. He's not a tame God, but he's good, and he's king. And today we're going to talk about what it means to reverence him. So welcome to the sixth, the final week of a six-part series. We've been going through the New Testament epistle of Hebrews. This is a Bible-savvy series, which means it's tracking along with our reading schedule. So if you've been using the Bible-savvy reading schedule, you've been reading the same passages day by day that we're looking at in the sermons on the weekends. And if you're not yet on board, I encourage you, you know, our mega goal for this year, I've been telling you, is Bible every day. We want to get everybody plugged into reading God's Word daily because This is how God speaks to you. This is how you engage God. This is how you discover God's plan for your life. And there is a schedule just waiting for you to pick it up. It's uh, online on our website, or you can pick it up on our mobile app as well. And this is a really good time to jump on board if you've not been a Bible reader, because a week from tomorrow, we start into the book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, one of the four short biographies about Jesus. Great place to begin, day after Easter. So if you've got a Bible, I want you to turn right now to Hebrews chapter 12. Okay, Hebrews chapter 12, and our topic today is reverencing God. The word reverence, if you look it up in the dictionary, means an attitude of deep respect tinged with awe. Tinged with awe. You know, just as Aslan is not a domesticated pussycat, so God is not some mild-mannered grandfather in the sky. You know, people who encounter God in the Bible typically fall on their faces and tremble with fear. Now, it's true that just as Aslan is a good lion, God is good. 
and he's loving, and he's merciful. But that's not the whole picture. And today we're going to take a look at what might be considered the more frightening side of God. We're, we're going to encounter a God who is not to be taken lightly, a God not to be marginalized in our lives, a God who is worthy of our deepest respect and awe, a God who is to be reverenced. Reverenced, And there are three ways to reverence God as we take a look at the passage today. By the way, if you're looking for that outline, you could find it on the mobile app and fill it in as we go. How do you reverence God? First way in Hebrews 12 that we're going to come across is in our coming. Uh, you'll discover what I mean by coming in, in just a moment. Our passage begins at verse 18 of Hebrews 12. The, the writer of Hebrews describes God as he was encountered by the Israelites at Mount Sinai, you know, 1,400 years before this New Testament epistle was written. Now, if you know the story, God had just delivered his people from 400 years of slavery in Egypt, and Moses was leading them toward the promised land. Okay, along the way, they come to a place called Mount Sinai, and God instructs Moses to go to the top of the mountain where God's going to meet with him and give him the Ten Commandments, God's moral laws. But God warns Moses to keep the rest of the people away from the mountain. See, God, by his nature, is characterized by blazing holiness, by overwhelming righteousness, so you don't want to get too close to God without divine invitation. It'd be like getting too close to the sun or getting too close to an atomic bomb blast. So Moses begins to ascend to the top of Mount Sinai and the mountain trembles. It shakes and there's lightning and thunder and darkness and clouds of smoke and fire. There's the sound of a piercing trumpet blast that gets louder and louder and louder. And nobody now has to be told a second time to stay away from Mount Sinai. Everybody is keeping their distance. This is where we, we pick up the story. 1,400 years later, the writer of Hebrews is saying, this God has not changed. He's the same God as at Mount Sinai. However... God has now made himself approachable through his son, Jesus Christ. We're no longer meeting him at Mount Sinai. This is where we pick it up. Follow along at verse 18. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness, gloom, and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Because they could not bear what was commanded. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned to death. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now this was what it was like to encounter the terrifying presence of God in Old Testament times. But again, the writer of Hebrews has been telling us that Jesus Christ, God's son, has made this God approachable. Remember what we learned about Jesus a couple of weeks ago as our high priest. Okay, back in Old Testament times, the high priest was the only one, the only one who could enter the presence of God. And he could only do it once a year on the Day of Atonement. That's when he would take the blood of sacrificial animals and he would enter into the most holy place, the inner sanctum of the temple. And he would sprinkle that blood onto the Ark of the Covenant, a gold-plated box that contained 
the Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets, God's moral laws that had been regularly disobeyed by people. People had defied God just as we do today. We go our way instead of God's way, and the result is death. It's death because we're disconnecting from the one who is the source of life. And so God, in his grace in Old Testament times, said that he was willing to accept the death of a sacrificed animal in place of the death of a sinful, sin, uh, a death-deserving human being. And so that's what the high priest was, was doing, bringing the blood of sacrificed animals into the most holy place. But that was a temporary system until Jesus came. When, when Jesus came, he entered into the most holy place, so to speak, as our high priest, taking not the blood of bulls and goats, but his own blood, the blood of the eternal son of God, of infinite worth. And so now our sins are not only forgiven if we've surrendered to Jesus, but we've gained access into God's presence. Remember again what happened on the day that Jesus was crucified and his body was torn apart on the cross. The temple curtain was torn from top to bottom. The curtain, you know, that kept everybody out from the presence of God. Jesus has made God approachable. Everybody is now invited to come. In fact, come is one of the writer of Hebrews' favorite words. Yes, sometimes it gets translated as come in our English version. Sometimes it gets translated as draw near or approach. I mean, the, the idea is that Jesus has made it possible for sinful, finite human beings to enter into a relationship with God who is blazingly holy, overwhelmingly righteous, an infinite God. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 6, verse 16 rather, says, let us then approach, there's the word come, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Chapter 7, verse 25, Jesus is able to save completely those who come to God through him. Chapter 10, verse 1, draw near. Again, that verb, come, draw near to worship. Chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart, with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience. Chapter 11, verse 6, anyone who comes to God, comes to God must believe that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. Come, 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 come. The writer of Hebrews says, God wants you to come. Jesus has made it possible for you to come. Wow, now let's go back to today's passage, Hebrews 12, and we're going to read the next paragraph in which the word come appears an additional three times. Jesus has made it possible for us to get close to God. However, we must do so reverently, keeping, keeping in mind, friends, that he's not like our fishing buddy. Okay, he's not like our overly indulgent grandpa. He's not like the burrito maker at Chipotle. He's the God who made Mount Sinai shake. So we pick it up at verse 22 and continue on in the passage. Now, there are a bunch of phrases here that after I read it, I'm, I'm going to have to unpack them for you. Okay, beginning at verse 22, but you have come, 
You got your own Bible? Circle the word come. You've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come, there it is again, to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You have come, there it is again, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. My goodness, we just drank from a theological fire hose there. So let, let, let me go through these phrases. One at a time. Verse 22, keep your Bible open in front of you. You have come to Mount Zion, the city of the living God. You know, the heavenly Jerusalem. About a thousand years before the writer of Hebrews penned these words, King David conquered the Jebusite city of Zion. And he rebuilt the city and he made it his capital. And he renamed it Jerusalem. Zion, Jerusalem, same city. And God promised David that one day, one day a descendant of his would sit on that throne and rule forever and ever over an eternal kingdom. Some years later, the prophet Isaiah said that this king would be God himself. Isaiah 24, verse 23, the Lord Almighty will reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem with great glory. And then you keep reading to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 21, that describes the end of time when God will create a new heaven and new earth and the, and the capital city of that Forever kingdom will be Jerusalem and God will dwell there. He will reign in all his fullness. Well, the writer of Hebrews says that Christ followers already have a foot in that kingdom. Look again at verse 22. But you have come. If you're a grammarian, that's perfect tense, okay? It's a done deal. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. See, the minute, listen, friends, the minute we surrender our lives to Jesus, we become citizens of God's forever kingdom. Now, we're not there yet physically, but Jesus has made it possible for us to draw near to God. So we're already getting a taste of God's eternal reign in our own lives. And someday, someday we will experience God's kingdom in all its majesty. Theologians refer to this as the already not yet. We're already getting a taste of it, but it's not yet come in all its fullness. Back to Hebrews 12, 22. Next phrase, middle of the verse. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. In Revelation chapter 5, the apostle John describes a scene at the end of time where Jesus is being worshipped in heaven. And John says, I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne. You know, that is a, a joyful, angel-led celebration that Christ followers one day will be part, part of. And we will be there because Jesus made it possible for us to come. To come. Back to Hebrews 12. Next verse, verse 23. Through Christ, we've come to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. Okay, firstborn. In in Bible times, the firstborn was the child who got all of the family inheritance. So did you know when you surrender your life to Jesus, you get everything that belongs to the Heavenly Father? And your name, according to this verse, your name gets written down in heaven. 
Jesus puts your name in his book. Revelation 21 verse 27 says that the only ones who will be allowed into God's new heaven and new earth will be those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Is that you? Now, do you have your name written there? There's still more in this Hebrews 12 paragraph. Look at the middle of verse 23. You have come to God, the judge of all. You say, well, I don't like this part. I don't want to come to God as judge. I don't want to be judged for all the stupid and wicked and sinful things I've ever done. And you need to know that if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, he's already taken that judgment, that punishment, that condemnation in your place. So when the writer of Hebrews says, look forward to the judge, he's talking about the one who will right all wrongs, the one who will forever banish injustice and evil from his eternal kingdom, the one who will vindicate his followers upon earth who suffered persecution and abuse at the hands of others. Look at the last line of verse 23. We've come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. The spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is a reference to those who've surrendered to God as Savior and King in times past. But right now, they are in the presence of God in heaven. They're already there. And I often reflect on this when I'm worshiping on the weekends at Christ Community Church. You know, as I come into our auditorium and I lift my hands and my heart, my voice to the Lord, I think to myself, I am singing. I'm singing with believers of ancient times past. I'm singing along with Abraham and King David and Esther and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And also I'm singing with believers of recent times past. I'm singing with my dad. I'm singing with my good buddy, Ronnie, who's, you know, he had the hugest hands I've ever seen. And they're lifted right now before the throne of Christ in heaven. And I'm singing with these people. If you think I have an overly active imagination, I just want to tell you, this is what the writer of Hebrews is telling me, that I have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. This is pretty cool stuff. And then the writer tops off his list with Jesus. Look at verse 24. We've come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. See, Jesus is the one who made all this coming possible. Jesus is the one who made God in his blazing holiness and overwhelming righteousness approachable. Jesus is the one who invites us, draw near, get close, engage in a relationship with the God who made Mount Sinai tremble. Reverencing God in our coming. If you've never Come, come to God through Jesus today. Second, what does it mean to reverence God? It means to reverence God in our obeying, in our obeying. Years ago, uh, Sue and I uh, were doing a getaway and Sue's sister, Patty, was willing to drive from Indiana and take care of our kids, three young kids at the time. And I, I have no idea, can't recall where exactly Sue and I went, but I'll, I'll never forget Aunt Patty's report when we got back home. It seems that our youngest, Andrew, had been quite a handful. He was maybe four or five years old at the time. But every time Aunt Patty asked him to do something, Andrew's response was, you're not the boss of me. I, I don't know where he got that belligerent spirit. I think it was from his mom, but I, yeah. <laughs> 
You're not the boss. We still laugh at that line to this day. You know, we'll occasionally use it. You're not the boss of me. Unfortunately, that's sometimes our attitude toward God. You can't tell me what to do. I'm the boss of me. We, 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 we treat his word as if it's optional reading. We regard his commands as if they're merely suggestions. Maybe I'll obey them, maybe I won't. We don't reverence God with our obeying. So let's take a look at what the writer of Hebrews has to say about that. We're picking it up where we left off at verse 25. He says, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. I mean, if they they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he's promised once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Okay, the, the writer of Hebrews again is calling us, you know, back to that event at Mount Sinai when Moses goes up to the top and meets with God and he gets the Ten Commandments, God's moral laws, and the mountain is shaking and the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and the trumpet blast. And Moses comes down and he says, God has spoken to us. Here are his moral commands that we're to obey. In other words, don't take obedience lightly. In fact, Moses went on to say there are blessings associated with obedience and there are curses associated with disobedience. Here are the good things that are going to happen if you walk in harmony with God's plan. And here's what's going to happen if you insist on going your way instead of God's way. And and later on, just to make sure that the people would not forget these blessings and curses, uh, Moses designed a ceremony for them to engage in when they finally got to the promised land. He said, when you get into the promised land, I want half of the tribes, 12 tribes, six tribes go to the top of Mount Gerizim, not a very high hill. And you're going to be the blessings team, okay? And across a very narrow valley and not too far away at the top of Mount Ebal, I want the other six tribes to go. You're going to be the curses team. And I want the blessings team to call out all the good things that are going to happen if you obey God. And I want the uh, curses team to respond with all the bad things that are going to happen if you choose to disobey God. I've always looked at this as kind of like the cheer that we used to do in high school. I don't know if they still do it today. You remember this one? You're sitting in in the stands at a football game. And your cheerleaders get you to your feet. And you call out to the fans across the field. We got spirit, yes we do, we got spirit, how about you? And the fans across the field, they jump to their feet and they scream back, oh, we got spirit, yes we do, we got spirit, how about you? So here's what's going on in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Okay, you got the blessings team on Mount Gerizim going, we got blessings, yes we do, we got blessings, how about you? And the, the evil folks are not to be outdone. They jump to their feet and they say, we got curses, yes we do. We got curses, how about you? It didn't happen that way, all right? <laughs> but, but you get the idea. And, and here's the, the interesting and the sobering thing about the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 8, 28 rather. The curses section, hear me, is three times as long as the blessings section. 
Now that's ominous. I mean, you know, God's commands were to be taken seriously. He didn't just blow them off. The consequences of disobedience, according to Deuteronomy 28, included sickness and drought and defeat and battle and poor harvest and anxiety and agitation. Now, the writer of Hebrews says, okay, if that's how God dealt with disobedience back in the day when he shook Mount Sinai, Just imagine how God's going to deal with disobedience when he shakes the whole earth and the heavens at the end of time. You see that at the end of verse 26. This is a description of God's final judgment. And the writer of Hebrews urges us to take that judgment seriously by living obedient lives today. Now the apostle Peter says something similar in 2 Peter chapter 3. Listen to this. Peter writes... The day of the Lord will come like a thief. In other words, Christ's return will be a surprise. The earth and everything done in it will be laid bare since everything will be destroyed in this way. What kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. You know, sometimes I hear professing Christ followers talk about their their disobedience nonchalantly as if it's no big deal. Hey, if Jesus paid the penalty for all my sins on the cross, then I've got nothing to worry about. You know, I'm free to disobey God because God has forgiven me already. Let me say, if that's what you've been telling yourself, you have two concerns to consider. First concern is that sort of a cavalier attitude toward sin is probably an indication that you've never surrendered your life to Jesus as king and savior. And so you still need to do that. And second, let me say that even if you are a genuine Christ follower and your sins have been forgiven, you you will still stand before Christ one day for a personal evaluation. Here's how the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. He says, for we must all, and Paul's talking to Christ followers here, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now please, Paul is not suggesting that true Christ followers will ever be eternally condemned for their sins. Christ has already taken our eternal punishment. So we'll get in. However, our eternal reward will be determined by the level of obedience in this life. In 1 Corinthians 3, Paul puts it this way. He said, yeah, every one of us is a builder in this life. Every one of us. And sometimes we build with good building materials, and sometimes we build with worthless, shoddy building materials. But come the end of time, Jesus is going to put a match to everything we've built, and the good stuff's going to survive. But all the worthless stuff, every act of disobedience, you know, every failure, failure to... Invest our resources, our time, and our effort, and our uh, finances in kingdom pursuits. You know, every, every opportunity we had to serve God, and we just, you know, we took a pass on it. It'll go up in smoke. But we'll get in, but empty-handed. So obedience to God in this life is a big deal. Now, just a footnote to this point. 
We've been saying repeatedly in this series that Christ Community Church's mega goal um, for this year is Bible every day. We want to motivate every one of you to become a daily Bible reader so that you get to know God and you get to know God's plan for your life. However, merely reading God's word doesn't necessarily result in obeying God's word. And that's why we also emphasize the importance of always coming away from your daily reading with something to apply to your life. What is it God's telling me to do in this text today? You know, and the same goes for your community group Bible study. Bible information is not the goal. Bible transformation is what we're pursuing. Putting God's word into practice. So if you're part of a deep Bible study, but it's not changing your life, you're missing the point. Certain Bible study approaches produce lots of Bible knowledge, but God wants Bible obedience. Reverencing God in our coming, reverencing God in our obeying. You get it? it. Good. One, One last suggestion here, directive with regard to reverencing God. Reverencing God in our worshiping. Hey, look at the closing verses of Hebrews 12. Verse 28. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken... Let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. How many of you have ever seen that Bible verse, our God is a consuming fire on a wall plaque in somebody's kitchen? How how many of you are using that right now? Oh, wow, that's a great verse. I think I'll put it as a screensaver on my computer. But it's the truth about God. He's not a tame lion. He's not, if you would, a pumpkin-scented Yankee candle. He is a consuming fire, like the sun times a billion. The writer of Hebrews tells us that the, you know, the only appropriate response to a God like this is, is worship. If you've got your Bible open, circle the word worship. And so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. Now, sometimes that worship is a, is a private affair. It's a... It's a Something we do on a daily basis. We we carve out time right alongside our our Bible reading to spend in praise to God. Or we do it while we're driving the car or walking along the river. We we, we do it as we kneel by our our bed before we climb in at the end of the day. We, we, We sing along with a worship CD or... We use some of the attributes of God, his positive characteristics. We pray them back in adoration to God. You say, I don't even know what those are. Well, we put together a list of 250 attributes of God from the Bible, A to Z list, and it's available on our app, our mobile app. Just go to the, to the app. The bottom right-hand corner says more. Tap on that, and it'll call up five or six things at the bottom, attributes of God, and tap on that, and you're there. So sometimes our worship is a private matter, hopefully a daily thing. Sometimes we worship collectively. This is what we we do once a week with other believers. And when, when we gather in one of our auditoriums, or even if you're gathering right now online in your your family room, we take this worship seriously because our God is a consuming fire. So as we begin to worship him, we put down our Starbucks mocha or water bottle. We stop focusing on what the lead guitarist in the worship band is wearing or the people around us are doing. 
Instead, we focus on the lyrics on the screen and the the truths about God. And we lift our voices and our hands and our hearts to him. And we just let it loose. So sometimes it's private. Sometimes it's public. But it's done with reverence and awe. In fact, the writer of Hebrews tells us that there are two traits that should characterize our worship. The first is thankfulness. Go back to verse 28. Since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God. Thankful and so worship. This is, this is a great daily practice, friends. Yeah, just at least once in the course of a day, go on a thankfulness rant. All right, just, just stop whatever it is you're doing and start to thank God. Thank him for your friends and your family. Thank him for your health. Thank him for Pastor Jim. Thank him for the Holy Spirit. Thank him for your job. Thank, you. thank him for the church, for the Bible, for Pastor Jim. Just thanksgiving. The other characteristic of worship that the writer of Hebrews mentions is reverence and awe. Verse 28 again, so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. 25 years ago, the military geniuses in our country, they came up with a new warfare strategy they called shock and awe. And according to their definition, shock and awe utilizes overwhelming power and spectacular displays of force to paralyze the enemy and destroy their will to fight. Listen, friends, when we worship regularly our God with reverence and awe, then our God, who is a consuming fire, fights for us. You believe that? You got the consuming fire in your corner. Wow. Let's pray. Lord God, I I pray that you would help us in this casual, cavalier culture in which we live, where it seeps even into our, you know, our church and our, how we follow you, I pray that you would introduce a new sense of reverence, that you're not a God to be taken lightly, that you're a God who is a consuming fire. Or as we read a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews, It's a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. You're not a God to be messed with. So thank you that though you are not a tame lion, you are good and you are king. And thank you, Jesus, for making an approach to this God possible. Thank you for going into the holy of holies, the most holy place with your blood and opening the way by your torn apart body so that we could have this relationship with God and draw near. I pray for those who've never drawn near. They've they've never humbled themselves, never bowed the knee, never surrendered to King Jesus, that even now in the quietness of their hearts, that's what they would do. And I pray the rest of us would begin to reverence you in our coming, in our obeying, and in our worshiping. We pray in Jesus' name.